Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And each year we have a theme uh, for the Miliband program, and the theme this year is progress and its discontents. And through that, we want to explore whether there's been a loss of confidence in the possibility of progress, and also, equally importantly, whether that can be reversed. And so we've got a range of speakers, some major public figures, some scholars, and some a mixture of both. I'm particularly pleased to be able to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr Susan George. The job of a responsible social scientist, she has written, is first to uncover the forces of wealth, power and so on that shape societies, then to write about them clearly and without jargon, and finally to take an advocacy position in favour of the disadvantaged and the victims of injustice. Susan has, I think, lived by that credo. She's participated in numerous campaigns for social justice. She's been actively involved and served on many organisations, including Greenpeace, where she was a member of the board. And she is today the president of the board of the Transnational Institute, a remarkable fellowship of scholar activists, much like herself. She published her first book, How the Other Half Dies, in 1960, 1976. And since then, she's published no less than 16 books that have been widely translated into numerous languages. Her latest book is Shadow Sovereigns, and she'll be drawing on that work in her talk for us tonight. And I should just mention at this point um, that the book is available outside after the lecture, and Susan will be available to sign a copy if that's what you would like. So our speaker will be talking for about 50 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. So can I at this point just ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr Susan George. Thank you so much. I, I am delighted and honored to be here. And I want to thank especially Robin Archer, who has set up the entire series. His assistant, Maya Goodfellow, who's done all the logistics and got me here safely and, and um, efficiently. There's an anonymous donor who's responsible for all of your speakers in this series. So whoever it is, wherever he or she is, thank you there too. And I'm also, frankly, I'm thrilled because this is a world-renowned school. I never dreamed I would be asked to talk here. And I also want to thank every single person here because you've come to listen to me rather than to Lionel Barber, the, <laughs> the chief editor of the Financial Times, who is lecturing in this vicinity So, as we speak. So thank you all for being here. Uh, when I saw the title of this series, I was a bit taken aback because progress and its discontents, that requires a real deconstruction, for, you know, like, as you do as an exam candidate, and we don't have time for that. And I'm also going to resist the temptation to talk about Freud and civilization and its discontents because he 
he was uh, certain that civilization was full of them, as it undoubtedly was and is. Um, But I'm going to start with my own position, and I might make a few philosophical uh, remarks, but my own position is that I only can see progress, technological, political, social, moral, whatever, as a goal of human action, and it depends entirely on what people do or don't do. It has no will or direction of its own. So when you say progress and its discontents, you know, it's really not a subject of of that uh, sentence. And as judges of the direction human affairs are taking in the world, I am, and practically everybody I know, uh, is hugely discontented with the cumulative effects of changes brought about over the past several decades. Progress is a relatively recent concept, and it's not universal. I can't say to what degree the idea is still generic to the West and part of the intellectual equipment of just a small part of humanity. Before the Enlightenment, the word was only used to talk about forward movement in space or time, Notions of moral, technical, or political progress were limited to such free spirits as Descartes and Locke. Um, And Descartes' injunction that we should use our scientific and technical knowledge to become maîtres et possesseurs de la nature, or masters and possessors of nature, really has a very hollow and false ring now, uh, given what a rotten job we've done of... Uh, in the time of climate change, of mastering nature, much less understanding or cooperating with its laws. The present notion of progress only became mainstream in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was a time when the French revolutionary Saint-Just could say happiness is a new idea in Europe. And Thomas Jefferson could write in the Declaration of Independence that the inalienable rights of human beings are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here the concept means moving towards an identifiable objective or satisfying an aspiration, and it's starting from a state of unhappiness or at least stagnation and monotony, and an individual can actively define and seek out something better. When it's a collective pursuit, say the New Deal in the 1930s, or perhaps the anti-war, uh, the war against fascism in the 1940s, uh, it's a collective effort which makes a higher degree of happiness for a much larger group. And if you want to dream, for the world. That's what people dreamed about when the United Nations was set up 70 years ago. So it's a great idea, although it's possible to argue that many parts of the world never made that same enlightenment journey characteristic of the past few centuries in the West. And the West itself can hardly be praised for its conduct during that period, given the realities of slavery, colonialism, the two bloodiest wars in human history, genocide, the list goes on and on. The West is no paragon, and Westerners are ill-suited to delivering lectures on progress to the rest of the world. So maybe the idea is still limited to a minority. I don't know. If you sincerely believe, for example, that the 
in the divine origin and ordering of the world and of your own existence, then trying to change anything fundamental about that ordering can border on the sacrilegious. Perhaps you remember the wonderful scene in the film Lawrence of Arabia in which a swashbuckling, handsome Peter O'Toole stars as T.E. Lawrence. At one point, he rides out into a desert sandstorm to find a man who has not returned to camp. All the Arab warriors tell him not to interfere. The man will disappear and die. His fate is sealed. It is the will of Allah. It is written. When at last O'Toole Lawrence rides back into camp with the man alive and slung across his saddle, he announces to the incredulous group of Arabs, nothing is written. Which shows that Lawrence is a Westerner through and through. He doesn't believe that the human world is organized according to a divine plan. I don't know much about Oriental philosophy, but I would also imagine that the concept of progress is utterly foreign to all the civilizations in which a basic element is a cyclical notion of time or the eternal return. The same would be true for all agrarian societies where the unending return of the seasons is the only constant. Added to the Islamic world, that makes an awful lot of people. So obviously none of this implies that non-Westerners are incapable of envisaging progress in the same way that Westerners do, nor that there aren't a lot of Western fatalists who are the many who can be counted on to tell you that all politicians and all governments are the same and that nothing will ever change, so why bother to vote or act politically? So let me just affirm that my own view of progress, technological, social, political, perhaps even moral, can exist, does exist, It has its setbacks and also its advances. Anyone who considers himself or herself a scholar activist or a public scholar has to believe in it, and I see it as the duty of all those who call themselves progressives, the word is the same, to live up to their name. It's possible to seek progress despite the odds. Here's my proof of the pudding argument in the form of an apocryphal story. We're in the 60s. Fidel Castro and Che Guevara are talking. Che asks Fidel, do you think the Americans will ever lift the blockade on Cuba? Fidel replies, that will happen when the United States has a black president. Yeah, says Che, and the church has an Argentinian pope. So, so you see, it can seem to take forever. A huge amount of damage will be inflicted in the interim. And there's a lot of bad news arriving daily. It's only human to grow discouraged sometimes, but things can and sometimes do change for the better. History isn't over. We have no claim and no right to believe that we know the future. Those who settle into despair and pretend to know the future can count on only one thing. They're contributing to failure. Antonio Gramsci said it this way, pessimism of the mind, but also optimism of the will. And that optimism of the will can also be called hope. 
Right now, I hope we've cleared a path and we can move on to the main points I want to make this evening. I'll stick to the political, social, and economic progress or regression. The psychologist Steven Pinker uh, says that our our societies are growing steadily less violent. Uh, And uh, any issue of the new scientist will reassure you on the notion of scientific and technical progress. But I'm going to leave those aspects to the people who are more competent than I am. I want to talk about the victory of neoliberalism, which is, to me, the greatest regression that um, certainly I have seen in my lifetime, but that has occurred for a very long time. This victory is easily the worst and longest-lasting regression. Many date it precisely to 1979 and 1980, with the electoral victories of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And anyone under 40 can be excused for thinking politics have always been this way. Certainly those elections were decisive, but the roots of this counter-revolutionary change go far deeper One can actually date this onslaught, I think, to the founding of the Mont Pelerin Society, whose first meeting was held in the Swiss village called Mont Pelerin uh, in 1947. It was organized by Friedrich von Hayek and his much younger disciple, Milton Friedman. Mont Pelerin has since received hundreds of thousands of dollars in support from conservative donors, Uh, and about 500 members uh, have joined it from dozens of countries. Uh, All its presidents have been well-known neoliberals, including some famous prize winners like Gary Becker. Margaret Thatcher wasn't so much a Thatcherite as she was a Hayekian, and she was a member of Mont Pelerin until her death. It was a revolution of ideas against which progressives could not or would not defend themselves, and the neoliberal revolution, which was brought about entirely by the power of ideas, are ultimate proof that ideas have consequences. In 2008, I published a book, also with Polity Press, called Hijacking America, describing empirically how American neoliberals, with help from the evangelical Christian movement, brought about a profound intellectual transformation in the United States from whence it spread to the rest of the world. These intellectual warriors are still in process of destroying practically every social advance made in the United States and Europe since at least the beginning of the 20th century, especially since the end of World War II. Their policies have instated the opposite of progress, rather a regression to a meaner, crueler, more inequitable and unfair society. This ideology of neoliberalism has infected all the traditional labor or socialist parties of Europe, which were once on the left. There are a few hopeful signs. We may be emerging from this decades-long tunnel, but these signs must be carefully nurtured if they are to lead to genuine progress or at least put a stop to regression. Right now, Spain and Portugal are particularly worth watching. And right here in Britain, you have had a recent change, which I'm sure you will all recognize better than I do. The subtitle of this book in 2008 was How the Religious and Secular Right Changed What Americans Think. 
and I tried to show those, how those I call the right-wing Gramscians established their own cultural hegemony. Let me stress the word cultural. Gramsci understood that no regime could win, could remain in power, and rule by force and coercion alone. People also needed and wanted a belief system, and as Gramsci puts it, a major characteristic of, I quote, any group that is developing towards dominance is its struggle to assimilate and to conquer ideologically the traditional intellectuals, unquote. This new group, which is seeking power, must also develop and nurture its own organic intellectuals, as he called them. And to accomplish this, those who seek dominance must also make the long march through the institutions. This is exactly the program the neoliberals understood and carried out. By now, they have either bought off or marginalized most of the traditional intellectuals, and they've developed their own cadre of extremely well-paid organic intellectuals who work in such centers as the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise, the Cato or Manhattan Institutes. They work as columnists and contributors in the mainstream media, and they work in a great many universities. They have their gurus, the most famous, of course, Friedrich von Hayek, but later on, former radicals like Irving Kristol, who justified his own conversion to neoliberalism, saying that he was a former leftist who had been mugged by reality. Crystal died in 2009. He was a godfather figure with a clear strategy, and that strategy was to build the right's own rival institutions to what he saw as the left's pernicious liberal ones, the universities, the media, the think tanks, the NGOs, the foundations, even the courts. It wasn't hard to sell this strategy to a good many corporations and huge industrial fortunes that generally funded the entire enterprise. It cost them well over a billion dollars, but they got more than their money's worth. They got a new American mindset, a whole new America, and one could argue a whole new world. And let me f put a parenthesis here. The fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War also contributed enormously to the spread of neoliberalism, but in a relatively short talk, it's impossible to deal and, and, do, um, and, and do honor to, to the number of... of um, influences that contributed to this spread of neoliberalism. These intellectuals promoted ideas that are today so commonplace that the younger people here may be surprised that it hasn't always been this way. Here's a quick resume of the doctrine. Markets are wise and efficient. They know better than people what people want. They know better than governments can ever know the market solution is always preferable, preferable to state regulation and intervention. Markets are self-correcting because they alone can process all the information that exists in the economy. One must deregulate. The job of government is to deliver negative law, that is to say, 
what is forbidden. It has no business interfering in people's choices or declaring that one must do this or that. No positive law, only negative law. Private enterprise outperforms the public sector on criteria of efficiency, quality, availability, and price. It should be given systematic preference. Free trade may have temporary drawbacks for some, but will ultimately serve the entire population of any country better than protectionism. Free trade is a concept which includes not just tariff protection at the borders, but what are also called beyond borders barriers. These can include regulations. They can put certain markets off limits to private enterprise, such as transport or water. Until the new World Trade Organization opened for business on the 1st of January 1995, these trade agreements concerned only goods. Now they cover services, intellectual property, regulation, attempts to deregulate, particularly on safety, health, or the environment, foreign direct investment, and many other areas. Such treaties and agreements should be, according to the doctrine, extended to all countries and to all economic activities. It's normal and desirable, for example, that activities like healthcare, education, and environmental protection be profit-making activities. States should ultimately deal with only services such as the police, the army, the fire department, the births and deaths registration, and very little else. Lower taxes, particularly for the rich, will guarantee greater investment and therefore jobs and prosperity. Inequality is inbuilt. This is particular to the United States, uh, where some writers go as far as saying, and it is probably genetic and racial. A free society depends on a free market. So it follows that capitalism and democracy are mutually supportive. And finally, if people are poor, they have only themselves to blame in the huge majority of cases because hard work is always rewarded. Some parts of the doctrine are mostly reserved for United States consumption alone, but the occasional Tony Blair or Peter Mandelson may use them as well. For example, uh, the neoliberals and their close allies, who are called neoconservatives, believe that in the United States, by virtue of its history, its ideals, its superior democratic system, it should use its economic, political, and military force to intervene in the affairs of other nations in order to promote free markets and democracy. People in other countries will necessarily welcome such interventions because they can rid the world of vile dictatorships and other undesirable elements and will ultimately prove to be for the good of all. That was Blair, along with his well-known belief in non-existent weapons of mass destruction. As for Peter Mandelson, another nominally labor politician, he announced in 2002 to a group that included Bill Clinton and a great many politicians from various so-called socialist parties. He said, we are all Thatcherites now. Quite so. Those are the principles 
This is the doctrine that brought us the crisis of 2007 and 8, which is still going on, and in which the banks are simply looking for a new occasion to bring down the entire house of the economy. It brought about great leaps forward in inequality and an uh, unpayable debt, many, many other results of that nature. It's not just the intellectuals and the funders who put neoliberalism in the driver's seat worldwide, but also a huge array of skilled communicators, rhetoricians, and public relations professionals. They're now part of the political and economic landscape, and their role in promoting this ideology remains paramount. The foundations pay for a cadre of experts in academic and non-academic institutions and think tanks. They spoon-feed journalists with well-prepared press releases. They have their own radio and TV premises on their own, in their own buildings. They can supply articulate debate participants to CNN or other TV networks. In the print medium, they cover and fund everything from scholarly quarterlies to campus newspapers. The Olin Foundation is a good example of one of these funders. Based on an industrial fortune made from chemicals and munitions, it's an excellent example of investing in ideas that have consequences. It opened in 1953 and then shut itself down in 2005, according to the will of the founder, who said that its millions, and it had hundreds of millions, had to be spent in the generation following his death, so his purpose of supporting free market economics would always be respected. Olin concentrated on funding conservative think tanks, media outlets, and law and economics. This is their own invention, law and economics programs influential in many universities where they founded chairs. The professors who hold these chairs teach free market economics and emphasize, I quote, according to the foundation, economic efficiency and wealth maximization as the conceptual cornerstones for judicial opinions. The foundation is perhaps best known for supporting the Federalist Society, which, as the Olin Foundation wrote to its trustees in 2003, has been one of the best investments the foundation ever made, with at least 60,000 members who are law students, lawyers, or law faculty members. This Federalist Society has enormous influence on American law and jurisprudence. At least four members of the Federalist Society are now Supreme Court judges. Every federal judge named by Presidents Bush, Pair, et Fils have been either members or have been approved by the society. Other wealthy foundations may have chosen different beneficiaries, but whoever the recipients, these foundations have never varied in their goal of changing the intellectual landscape and they have excelled at making corporations and private wealth secure, often at the expense of individual rights, labor rights, and environmental protection. This vast intellectual apparatus acts as an ideas legitimizer. Let me take a single example of the consequences. 
You probably know that thanks to a recent Supreme Court decision in the United States, a decision called Citizens United, it is now possible for private individuals and corporations to make unlimited financial contributions to the parties and the candidates of their choice, most often, obviously, the Republican Party. Such donations are now classed as a form of speech. Free speech is protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. This decision bears all the hallmarks of the Federalist Society and its donors, and it has introduced even greater corruption into the electoral system already far too dependent on big contributors. At about the same time that neoliberals were beginning their long march through the institution in earnest, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce teamed up with the distinguished corporate lawyer, Lewis Powell, to admonish the big American corporations for not defending the capitalist system, the system that brought them their profits. Powell later became a Supreme Court justice under Nixon. And he wrote a hugely influential document in the form of a memorandum to the President of the United States Chamber of Commerce explaining how and why the free enterprise system was under threat. The anti-Vietnam War movement, plus many other growing social movements among women, among racial minorities, many social movements at that time in the late 60s and the early 70s, were reducing support for capitalism all over the country, especially on university campuses. And Powell told the corporations that they had to become genuine activists. Powell's memo reads like a kind of Leninist, what is to be done, uh, document. He says they must not only name, the corporations must not only name top officers in their own companies to deal with this threat, but work together as a counter-movement. As he puts it, here's a quote, independent and uncoordinated activity by individual corporations will not be sufficient. Strength lies in organization and careful long-range planning over an indefinite period of years in the scale of financing available only through joint effort and in the political power available only through united actions and national organizations, unquote. Today it may seem to you utterly surreal that in 1971 Powell could say the following to his audience. This is what he said. Few elements of American society have as little influence in government as the American businessman. Unbelievable, but true at the time. And the corporations were listening. But at that time, Paul was, he was really talking sense. Corporations took his advice, and they began their own long march through the institutions. And they began to educate not just the public, but the politicians, and to change the law to meet their needs. Cooperating with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in cash terms still, today, the biggest lobby in the United States, they began to work together and they saw quick results. For example, they prevented an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, and since those days, business has never looked back. 
This is why, as I explain in my new book called Shadow Sovereigns, we're venturing into territory that has been utterly transformed over the last 30 years. The French version of this book came out earlier, and it's titled Les Usurpateurs, The Usurpers. I know this doesn't sound too great in English, um, but um, it really is um, the designation of those we are up against, usurping power uh, by corporations which no one has elected and which are completely liberated from any inhibitions they might have felt in the early 1970s. A government of, by, and for the largest corporations is by its very nature illegitimate, and I try to show that that is what we're heading for. But let me clarify this. I'm not saying that these huge companies have any desire to sit in the Oval Office or in Number 10. That's not the goal. They don't want to deal with the nuts and bolts of government, much less put up with the burden of elections. A few areas of lawmaking are still of no interest to them, but wherever there's money to be made and their profits and their status are in question, they want to set the agenda, fix the parameters, and make sure that their interests come first. Those interests may include labor laws and taxes, but also public health, food and agriculture, environmental protection, safety regulations, and a great deal more. So you're not going to find the corporations themselves at front and center. Just as they have politicians to do their will, so they also have thousands of paid uh, lobbyists who handle the day-to-day business of persuading the relevant person to act on the relevant arguments that the company defends. The big names, such as the top people in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or its counterparts in Business Europe, or above all in the European Roundtable of Industrialists, which is made up of about 50 heads of the largest corporations in Europe, uh, these are the people that they, who can go and meet anyone at any level at any time. As Peter Sutherland, a former commissioner and a former, well, a head of so many things, Goldman Sachs, uh, BP, uh, so many things you can't even mention his, his CV, uh, he said that the European Roundtable of Industrialists is, I quote, more than a lobby group. Each member has access at the highest levels of government. Well, that, that, that's the case. Um, so the lobbying industry is also highly sophisticated, and it pretty much escapes political control, especially in Europe. In the United States, lobbyists have to register. They have to register with Congress, and there are penalties if they don't. In Europe, there's a register, but it's voluntary. And if you want to fill in the questions, you can supply whatever figures you want to supply, uh, including fantastic figures about how much you're paid by whom and to lobby for what. Um, Our friends, the researchers at the Corporate Europe Observatory in Brussels, this is an NGO that's expert in pulling obvious anomalies out of the registry. They have uh, been asking with others for a compulsory registry for years, but we have never got it. And Jean-Claude Juncker said in his electoral speech that he would be sure to instate a, a compulsory registry, but he's never done it. Changes are refused for impenetrable legal reasons. 
What these tactics come down to is that the Commission doesn't want a compulsory register that would release details about who pays for lobbying because such details would implicate the Commission itself. So the Corporate Europe Observatory obtained, for example, the list concerning the meetings that the Commission held with various interest groups in 2012-2013 before the start of the negotiations on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the TTIP. And I'll come back to that. This partnership, which is now being negotiated, the treaty between the U.S. and Europe, well, to prepare for it, the Commission had over 120 meetings. I think it was 127. And 93% of those meetings were held with business people, their representatives, their federations, or their lobbyists. That left 7% for environmentalists, trade unions, consumers, public health organizations, or others who were defending non-commercial interests. I have to say I'm rather proud of my catalog of how to be the perfect little lobbyist in in the book. I can't give you all of the the, uh, uh, elements of that now, but you should at least know that if you can't defeat a measure as a lobbyist, it's probably good enough if you can delay and weaken it, and above all, you have to create doubt in the public's mind about the science on the other side. That's what they did with tobacco for decades. It kept movements against tobacco from getting any uh, strong laws for a very long time. It's also good to argue the sanctity of consumer choice, especially in cases where people want to eat or smoke or drink themselves to death. You just say that the consumer has a right to choose and that any infringement of that right is an offense against democracy. And, of course, you always stress jobs and growth because you try to sell any subject on the basis of jobs and growth. And also you say that what your opponent wants to do is going to lead to higher prices and unemployment. Despite the Volkswagen scandal and some marginal progress in setting new standards against pollution, nothing is going to be obligatory before 2019. People often ask why governments follow business demands so closely and accede to them so often. That's, That's a question for Pierre Bourdieu, and I'm sorry that he is no longer with us to answer it. Is it because the leadership on both sides belongs to the same social class? Is it because the business community's arguments really are convincing? And in some areas, like banking, the technical, the arguments are so technical that they can overwhelm poor non-specialist politicians. Is it because politicians really believe that their country's GDP and trade balance depends on doing what the companies want? Or perhaps is it because many of the politicians have grown up under neoliberalism and nobody ever taught them any other sort of economics? Probably all of those things. But I think there's also an element of quasi-religious belief in which salvation is based on faith, whatever the evidence of efficacy. The politicians do not seek and therefore they do not find an alternative. Now... 
Back to the TTIP. Much more is now known about it than was known when I was writing uh, The Shadow Sovereigns. So I assume that everyone here has at least a basic knowledge of what's in it and the main things that are wrong with it. Uh, I would simply like to underline a few points. The first is that the TTIP is a frontal assault on democracy. It's entirely based on a corporate project which began 20 years ago when in 1995 the Transatlantic Business Dialogue held its first meeting. This transatlantic business dialogue was made up of about 70 of the largest transnational companies with headquarters on both sides of the Atlantic, and from the beginning they were sponsored by the U.S. Department of Commerce and the European Commission, particularly the Trade Directorate. These companies organized working groups according to their professions. Pharmaceuticals, chemicals, vehicles, uh, uh, and so on. They set out to work on common standards and regulations, and their slogan is a real triumph of modesty modesty and self-effacement. This is their slogan. Approved once, accepted everywhere. Meaning that if we, the transnationals, have approved a regulatory procedure or a common standard, then you ordinary mortals had better accept it too, as well as governments. This structure evolved over the years, and its latest incarnation is called the Transatlantic Economic Council. It was established in 2007 by Chancellor Merkel, President Bush, and Commission President José Manuel Barroso. This may sound just like another shop for greasing the wheels of commerce, but this is what you learn on their website. This is the very first part of their website. I quote, The Transatlantic Economic Council is a political body to oversee and accelerate government-to-government cooperation with the aim of advancing economic integration between the United States of America and the European Union. I don't remember anyone having voted for the economic integration of the European Union and the United States and certainly none of the people on the Transatlantic Economic Council have ever been elected, but they call themselves a political body. These are the people who for years have prepared the TTIP negotiations, and now they've handed their wish list to the official negotiators. The corporations thought it was going to go through very quickly. They've been surprised that it hasn't, that they didn't finish it in 2014, and now they're saying perhaps we can't finish it during Obama's term of office. I think it shows how deeply the companies want to control and change our politics, and I call it an assault on democracy because concretely you can start with the secrecy of it. It's secret even from parliamentarians. It's quasi-irreversible if it's signed, There are zero citizen contributions to the contents, and there is the attention to make it an everlasting agreement. In the jargon, that means that you can can sign it, and then after it has been signed, you can add things to it which will not be discussed either publicly or or privately among something the negotiators in the country simply agree on, and it can be added after the signature with the same legal force but with no input from the public once more. 
national legal systems become subject to the ISDS, or the Investor to State Dispute Settlement, which is a one-way street. It allows corporations to sue governments, and in a private tribunal of three professional lawyers who are arbiters, if the company believes that its legitimate expectations, quote-unquote, have not been satisfied, or if its profits, present or future, have been in any way harmed by any state measure. The system is not reciprocal. A state cannot sue an investor. There's no process of appeal, and so far, on the basis of 320 cases that have been decided under the terms of other treaties, which have the same provision that is expected in the TTIP, the statistics are the following from UNCTAD. Um, the state has been exonerated in 37% of the cases, so the 63% remaining have either been settled with an award to the company from the, from the government or in a settlement out of court, and those are not public. Nothing about these things has to be public. Some of it we know, some of it we don't. But 63% of the cases, nearly two-thirds, have ended in having to spend uh, public money, taxpayer money, to satisfy corporations. And some of the more egregious decisions have concerned, I just give you a couple of very quick examples because otherwise I don't want to uh, take up too much time. But in, in uh, Egypt, Veolia is suing the government, no decision yet, because the government raised the minimum wage. And therefore, Veolia's legitimate expectations about what it would have to pay as salaries have not been satisfied. In Ecuador, uh, Occidental Petroleum demanded to be able to drill for oil in a particular area. The government said this is a protected area, uh, and the company has won, and the award to to Occidental is $1.8 billion. I don't know how much, what proportion that is of the Ecuadorian health or education budget, but it's clearly uh, a very large demand. These things happen all the time. And it can be labor, it can be the environment, it can be practically anything, sometimes very technical. But these, these cases are, um, are going to be more and more frequent, and if the TTIP passes, that means that the investors who have put more than $3 trillion into one side or the other, America in the U.S. or the opposite, are going to be able to sue governments. This means dozens and dozens of companies could come together and decide to sue if some particular uh, measure of a government displeased them. And they, would, they, would come, they all agree, so they would come together on this. Um, the other big subject on the corporate mind is what they call regulatory reform. You recall that I put as one of the doctrinal points, you must deregulate. Well, what they want is to get in on the ground floor and participate in the regulatory process itself, handily dismissing legislators whose job this is supposed to be. The technical agencies would also help setting the rules, but uh, we know that these technical agencies that advise the European bureaucracy uh, are um, already made up about 85% of corporate people. Uh, And we 
finally know that the revolving door between the commission and the corporations is spinning very, very fast. People go from a job in one sector to the other very easily. Now, just as a final word about progress, and without elaboration, because I've been talking about regression most of the time, I want to make two more points. No elaboration. First, at the individual country and the European level, we've got to get rid of austerity programs. The quintessential neoliberal nostrum that doesn't work except for a tiny minority. They didn't work during the debt crisis in the South during the 1980s and the 1990s, and they don't work in European countries today. Even the International Monetary Fund, which was one of the, uh, the, the agencies which imposed what were then called structural adjustment programs but are the same as austerity programs today, even they recognize that these don't work, and they have said as much in several documents. What happened to Greece this summer is shameful and dishonors Europe. The program forced down Greece's throat is a pure product of ordo-liberalism, the German variety of neoliberalism, based on the same dogmatic, unverifiable postulates which lead to the same policies guaranteed to worsen suffering and, <clears throat> and to worsen the, uh, the, the economics of the country. In Germany, as Wolfgang Munchau of the Financial Times has written, there are two kinds of economists, those who haven't read Keynes and those who haven't understood Keynes. Let us hope that the destiny of Podemos in Spain will be a more promising one than that in Greece. And while I'm at it, I once again want to express my hope that Jeremy Corbyn will have the destiny that he, he deserves and Britain deserves. Second, let me remind us all that climate change is the most serious, life-threatening, species-threatening challenge ever to confront the human family, and therefore the most urgent one on which we must make progress now, literally on pain of death for millions. We're on the brink of a Paris conference which will not guarantee that we remain under the threshold of two degrees Celsius. That's the danger point, as it is now fixed. Except for the corporate sponsors of the denialist movement, who are truly climate criminals, I do not deal with this issue in my most recent book, although I have done so in others. But I would like to tell you that 90 corporations, including 50 investor-owned corporations, and 40 state-owned entities are responsible for 63% of all the CO2 emissions historically emitted worldwide since the mid-18th century and the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. If you are interested in the reference, I will give it to you. It's a scholarly piece that was published in 2014 in Climatic Change, scientific journal which is peer-reviewed. We must imperatively leave 80% of the, all the fossil fuels still unburnt or, or we face extinction. It's as simple as that. We must work for disinvestment in fossil fuels. To exp we must work to expand the transition towns movement, work to make governments invest in the transition economy. This is not a question of progress or regression. It's a question of progress or else. There is little time. 
I think by now you'll all be tired of me. I've probably offended a lot of people as well. So I really want to thank you once more for your kindness. Um, my conclusion about the power of neoliberalism and the transnational corporations, I'm going to leave it to somebody else. I'm going to leave it to someone you all knew who said in his farewell speech to Parliament, in the course of my life, I've developed five little democratic questions. Ask a powerful person, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interests do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? If you can't get rid of the people who govern you, you do not live in a democratic system. Tony Benn, farewell speech to Parliament, 2001. Thank you all. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, we've got a good chunk of time for questions now, so I just want to um, see some hands, and I'll, I'll take people in ones to begin with, depending on how we go. Okay, could I start with the... Do we have a mic for the... Because they're, they're um, just being recorded. There's a microphone going oh. around. So this gentleman with the hat, please. I don't know, it's just um, could it, Just before you start, could, could everyone say who they are and where they're from, just for the benefit of the speaker? Um, Dr. Keith Postler... No, I'm Latter sorry. I like to see who's speaking and I don't. Sorry? Ah, yes. Thank Dr. You. Keith Postler, latterly at LSE, teaching quantitative um, statistics. Yeah. Um, also external examiner in finance at Birmingham. Um, my question is, um, what accounts, in your opinion, for the lack um, of an anti-neoliberal response mm -hmm. Um, to the neoliberal tools, institutions, and organizations right. that you have outlined. Do you like to take a lot of questions? Why don't we one start by, one? by that and we'll see how we go. We, we start okay. with that so one. We'll, we'll, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I really don't account for it, and this is a very frequent question, so it's embarrassing to say I don't account for it, because uh, I think it's, it's partly what I said before. It's either that, that the educational system is now teaching only one brand of economics, I'm sure that is not the case here, but it's certainly the case in a great many American schools. Well, I mean, you know better than I. I can see a few heads going, but um, that's a debate you've got to have uh, because there needs to be a plurality. Um, and uh, I think also that progressives just think, well, our ideas are so good that they don't have to be defended. It's perfectly obvious that human rights are important. It's perfectly obvious that you don't want to starve your, your working people, um, that, you, that you must gradually um, give people enough freedom and enough money to raise a family correctly, uh, that you want to have health and education. As soon as you're slightly rich, you want to have health and education become free for everyone and of great quality. And uh, as Obama is now proposing, although America certainly is not a model in this, in this area, um, that, that there be at least two years of university, which would also be free. Uh, 
there, we just think, well, this is obvious. So how can it possibly be that people can convince you? And often in the United States, it's the people who would benefit the most from health care who say, you know, Obamacare is just horrible and it's socialized medicine and this is against all our principles. And so they, they, there's a, a man called Thomas Frank who wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? in which he explains very well how you can, you can propagandize people into voting against their own interests because they, um, uh, and then there's a lot in the United States, there's also a lot of what I call body politics. People get very hung up on questions of abortion, very hung up on questions of women's rights, gays' rights, uh, sexual behavior, uh, all these things, who's in bed with whom, at what age, and to do what, and with what results. I mean, these things just polarize the public so that the, the really political questions uh, sort of get lost. And, and so I, I cannot account for uh, the whole of it, but I think those are two things. And you're absolutely right that we have to have a counter-movement which is conscious of the, the hijacking that has taken place and is still taking place uh, every day. Uh, because this is a pernicious and, and, uh, and long-lasting illness uh, which has to be countered. And it starts, it starts in, the, in the universities, but also in the churches, in the media, uh, in the alternative media. Um, and we've got alternatives springing up everywhere, but of course they don't get that much publicity. But in every country uh, that I know of, in Europe, there is now a movement of of what in France are called the économistes atterrés, the appalled economists. Uh, they have different names in different countries, but they have now founded a network which is called the Europen, P-E-N, for the, um, the, the public economics, progressive economics network. So there are things that are happening, and, and not everyone is taking the, this change lying down. But, I mean, first you need the facts. We can't do politics now Unless, like we, unless we have the facts. When I started off, it was during the Vietnam War, and you could say, U.S., get out of Vietnam, and people understood what you were talking about. They agreed, they didn't agree, but they understood. And now you say, look, the TTIP is a really bad treaty, and then you have to go into a long song and dance to explain why it's a very bad treaty. So if you've only got, you know, 30 seconds, uh, you can talk in slogans, but you can't really talk in... Um, reasoned uh, and convincing uh, terms for, for rational people. So I would say just imitate the others. You know, I explain what the others do in hijacking America and in shadow sovereigns. I explain what they do. We have to do the same things. It's perhaps worth mentioning that Professor Wendy Carlin of University College London is coordinating an international effort to try and um, reassess what should be taught for economics, and I mention that because she's giving a lecture for the Ralph Miliband program on that very topic well, on the third good. of December. Everybody so. should come. <laughs> I wish I could be here. But can I go back to my principal task of taking questions? Yes. So can we have this gentleman here, please? I do some research into finance. Um, you said we should get rid of austerity or attack the idea of austerity in Europe. Uh, the European Central Bank quantitative easing QE program 
uh, spends, I think, 50 billion euros, yeah, prints 50 billion euros a month. I think it's even 60 now. Well, the, interestingly enough, the other slice, that 10 billion slice, is not to buy government debt. By buying government debt, then, they bail out governments who themselves have bailed out banks. Mm -hmm. But the other slice, that 10 billion, is called the Covered Bond Purchase Programme. And they use that 10 billion to bail out banks <coughs> who have lent money to local government. Uh, if we're going to get rid of the austerity argument, I think it would be a very good thing to highlight the fact that the ECB are printing money in order to bail out the banks uh, in that way. I've sent a Freedom of Information request to the European Central Bank to ask them to print the names of whose covered bonds they've been buying. Uh, I used to think that they would be Spanish and Italian. I now strongly believe that they're mainly German banks who they've been uh, bailing out, German banks who... I don't think are particularly good at lending money. Uh, pretty terrible, in fact. Yeah, they, they rebased themselves in Dublin uh, to get lower tax and have been lending to lots of people. So I'm interested in knowing whether or not you think that the QE programme could be used to bail out not just governments and banks, but also perhaps the environment and um, other things. Well, um, you're way ahead of me on, on the details of the bonds. Um, the part of the, the, the European Central Bank has a mandate, and it is, its mandate obliges it to lend to banks and not to governments. So we're in a position which is completely ordo-liberal, that's the German name for it, um, in which the, the, the money does not go to governments at a half of 1% or something, which could be perfectly simple to do, it goes to banks, which can borrow at less than 1%, but that's when then, then team up and fix whatever interest rate the traffic will bear. So that means that countries like Greece uh, and Spain and so on have spent more in order to resolve, not, well, not resolve their debt, because they're not resolving their debt, but the but they have to spend more because they have to pay higher interest rates than if the government got the money directly at one-half of 1%. One and there, there was a paper that came out, I can't remember who wrote it, uh, that showed that the Germans had made an awful lot of money because whenever Greece has a crisis, all of the markets have a flight to quality, and they get rid of their bonds from the difficult countries, and they buy German bonds. And because they buy German bonds, and there's a massive demand for German bonds, the interest rates that Germany has to pay to the borrowers go down. Therefore, Germany is making huge economies out of the Greek crisis. Millions. Billions. And I'm pretty sure that Mr. Schoble or Schäble, I've never known how to pronounce it correctly, um, knows this. I won't go any further than that. But Germany ha has, pays low, lower interest rates, and this is a guarantee of, of um, you know, more money for Germany. Okay. Yeah. Can I have... Stuart. Um, Stuart. Just wait for the mic. Thanks. Uh, Stuart Wallace from the New Economics Foundation. Just one 
um, fact on that earlier question that might be of interest. We did a movement review looking at that exact issue, why civil society wasn't collaborating together in the way that um, the neoliberals did. And what we found in there was that um, people were focusing far too much on policies and not enough on principles, whereas the neoliberals stuck at the principle level and might dis- differ on lots of, princ- lots of policies, but they managed to collaborate at the principle level, where, whereas we tend to argue over every little policy and say, no, I don't agree on that, or I don't agree on that. So we've, been, we've failed often to get our collective act together and work for the common mm-hmm. good rather than arguing our own cases. That's one of the things that mm-hmm. came out. And we're busy helping facilitate now a, a new economy organizers network, which has now got a 1,000 members in of Ooh. campaigners from all sorts of organizations mm-hmm. who work together on joint campaigns. But that's enough of that. But that's certainly one of the moves that's happening now quite actively in this country. But my question is really one of the other thing we saw that the neoliberals did brilliantly, which you've touched on. They had brilliant language. What's to not like about free markets, freedom of the individual, Mm -hmm. and they added small government Mm -hmm. and strong defence? Have you seen amongst the the counterforces any simple language? Because we tend to talk about sustainable development or we tend to talk about... And we don't, that language just doesn't communicate to the public. So I wonder whether you've got no. any bright ideas there, because that's one well, of the things. Well, I don't have bright ideas, but George Lakoff has a lot of bright ideas. And George Lakoff tells you how, I mean, he's saying pretty much what you're saying. And he says you have to frame the way you talk to people. And, and it's, it's perfectly common sense. It's commonsensical. But, but we, we often prime people to give a negative answer to a, to, to a question. Uh, and what the right has done among their their think tank people, but they have a they have a university which specialises in rhetoric, called the Patrick Henry University. They they train lawyers in particular. I think they actually beat Oxford at one point. These people, un, totally unknown, um, and they they are great debaters and they know how to you know, manage rhetoric, and, and they do it very skillfully. And I, I don't think there's a single course that I've ever heard of in political rhetoric uh, that would do that for, maybe we can give that as an assignment to the LSE, you think? A good course in political rhetoric? Oh, I mean, how, how, to frame, how to frame questions, and how our how questions framed? Thanks for that contribution. Very important. Okay. Uh, can we have the woman at the back, please? Uh, my name is Veronica Torres from the University of Greenwich. Well, first of all, thank you for the book. It's really inspiring, and I think especially for those who want to be considered as a minority. Uh, my, my question is, especially from the perspective um, on, in the South, where these regional agreements have already been signed, do you think there is still a, a role or a chance for the state, different from governments, who usually support the TNCs in order to defend constitutional rights or international human rights law? Do I think there's, I mean, there's Just other. repeat that last question more slowly. <laughs> yeah, if you see that there is a chance or a role for states. For the state? Yeah. yeah sure. In terms of, I mean, additionally to the social movement, which is very important as well, to defend in terms of constitutional rights and international human rights law? 
I, I not only see a role, I see it as the only role, because if you don't have law, uh, and if you don't have enforceable law on your side, uh, you're going to be pushing that rock up the hill and having it fall back down on you. Uh, you know, it's, it's a Sisyphean task. So, of course, I see a role for the state. The problem is that if, if states are completely, you know, jelly uh, and, don't, and don't enforce things and don't, and don't you know, uh, support their principles, um, then um, you, you get a very weak protection of rights. And that's what we see all the time. These private courts are, are, uh, are, are um, what's the opposite of vindicating? They are um, trashing rights. I don't know. Mm, the, 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 the courts, for example, there's, there is a, a trial on another treaty. It's, it's not the TTIP because that hasn't passed yet. But between Canada and the United States, there is a company that wants to frack in the province of, of uh, Quebec. Quebec has said, no, we have a moratorium on fracking. We think it's probably very dangerous and polluting and so on and so on. The company is demanding $250 million. They are likely to get it from a private arbitrary arbitration tribunal. The decision hasn't been made yet. But this is a clear example of popular desire to have a moratorium. That's why there is a moratorium. That is why the province has declared it. It was an act of, of justice by the state. And here is this company that is trying to undermine it and may succeed and may say this is a measure which is harmful to our profits. So this is, that's exactly the reason that we have to, uh, we cannot accept that the state uh, can be vilified in that way and told you whatever you say it has and and I could have also mentioned that it's a threat against the judiciary and the legislative I, I was relatively explicit on that but also for the executive because if you are a government and you think well I would really like to pass a law which says that we raise the minimum wage or we are going to outlaw uh, any more than X uh, carbon, uh, X tons of carbon, and so everybody will just have to obey that law. And then they say, but hey, wait a minute, uh, we're going to have 30 companies lined up against us, and they're going to be asking for billions, and we don't have billions to give to these companies. You know, So it's going to be a, like a they call it a chilling effect. You know, it's like, a, it's like putting cement over, over grass. Uh, it doesn't allow anything to grow. If you have that kind of threat always hanging, you know, the speed of sword of Damocles hanging over your, your head. So that, that is another reason why the, the TTIP, it, it wants to completely emasculate the state. If the state has the, the, the good sense to try to pass decent laws, um, they, they will be, um, again, I come up against vindicated. They will be, be you know, and it isn't vilified either. This happens when you get to be my age. Um, anyhow, you, you take my meaning. Okay. Um, can we have uh, this gentleman next to the column here, please? My name is Aul Alo. I am LC Fellow, the Department of Sociology here at the LC. An LSE Fellow? Yes, LC Fellow. 
Um, I wanted to ask you um, about the global south and this shift that is taking place uh, in, in most countries in Africa where, uh, by way of protest to the Washington consensus and neoliberal economics, countries are looking toward the east, uh, taking China as a model, for example, and using this idea of developmental states um, where the notion that there is no necessary connection between democracy and economic growth is very strong. I wonder whether you think um, developmental states uh, the, or the model of developmentalism which is used in China... I'm sorry? The, the, and, the, and the what? The, the model of states. developmentalism or developmental states oh. can be one alternative to uh, neoliberal economics with all, with all its problems. Well, certainly there are many, many models of development. This is the business of saying there is no alternative and everybody's got to do it this way is total nonsense. That much we know. And, I mean, if you... I would not be able to answer that question as a, an overall question. What I would want to know is what is the status of food sovereignty in the country. I would want to know uh, how many people are migrating into the cities, how could, uh, could the uh, farming sector be improved in order to uh, make sure that the country is safe in times of high prices for food. Uh, there, there are just so many questions there that um, I think it, if the government is well-intentioned towards the people and is not simply trying to get its, make itself richer and its own members richer, then there's a huge variety of things that can be done. Um, a long time ago, we had a great deal of hope in Tanzania and in certain other African countries, and there are still um, good things that are happening in, in some of these countries. But the, I think it's the uniformity also that is extremely dangerous to say everybody's got to do it this way and no other way. I know that's not a, a good answer to your question. I'm sorry, but um, it's, it's the best I can do. <clears throat> okay. Um, can we have this gentleman in front of the... Yep. Hi. Uh, my name is Jonathan. Um, I work for an Israeli progressive think tank. And I, w I just would like to tell you that uh, it was founded, um, one of the, of the founding documents for us was your, do your uh, article, Winning the War of Ideas. It was a great inspiration for us uh, four years ago when we founded this. It's actually the only progressive think tank in Israel. Um, and uh, heaven knows which that book? we... Which book? Sorry, which hmm? book? Which book? Um, your article, Winning the War of Ideas. Oh, I don't even know what, what that was. About. Uh, <laughs> you, you can I'll tell me afterwards. I'll remind you. I uh, know my question, my question has to do with this. So on behalf of our staff, um, thank you. Uh, it's an article that... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it describes... Uh, the, it, uh, it was published in 1997, um, and it describes the, the, the difference um, between the dynamic, dynamics of leftist organizations and rightist organizations when it comes to funding and when it comes oh. to um, nurturing young leadership and so on. Um, now it, it's been almost 20 years uh, since its publication. I was wondering if you see any difference in the uh, leftist infra political infrastructure. 
If you get me onto the subject of funders, we're going to be here for a very long time. Um, unfortunately, I mean, there are progressive institutions which will fund progressive ideas. However, at least in the cases that I have known up close, these funders are quite different from the ones on the right. On the right, they say, we're going to fund your ideas, get on with it. We're going to pay people very well so they will not be tempted to go into business or into something else because they can't make a living. And we are going to make long-term grants. We know that you cannot get something off the ground in a year and a half or two years. So we will make a long-term grant, and we, once you believe in someone, and once you think they're serious and they're going to work hard, you just let them get on with it. This is not the case, I'm sorry to say, with progressive funders. And what's more, they do not ever want to fund what is called the core in organizations. They never, boring things like telephones, computers, uh, you know, all the, those things without which you simply cannot run a shop, um, but which, you know, they, they bore them. So, uh, and they want all kinds of reports all the time, so you have to stop doing whatever, you know, the research project is, and, and, and write that report, you know, every three months or whatever. I mean, the whole funders structure, but you can see in, in their interests also, a lot of people would lose their jobs if they just said, get on with it, you know. They've got to create this kind of, of uh, atmosphere in which the, the grantee um, has got to respond all the time. And the grantee has got to be kept sort of uncertain because maybe next year the grant is not going to be, be renewed, etc., etc. So, I mean, give me, the, give me power over the world and I change a lot uh, of things like that. Uh, and unfortunately, and I have written about this, and some of my ideas have been discussed by progressive funders. That much I know, but I am sorry to say I cannot see what, what you call changes in Maybe someone like Stuart knows more about this than I do because he's running a progressive organization, the New Economics Foundation. Uh, maybe you'd like to answer that question or give your, your view. I think I mean, that would be helpful because I don't have to do this sort of thing anymore. At one point I did have to fundraise and I can tell you that it was hell. <laughs> but it's the, thing, the only thing that keeps me awake at night. So, it, much of what you say, sadly, is true. Though now, though, particularly European-wide, there are some funders who are thinking longer term and are starting to think about um, there's something. There's even collaboratives of funders called Partners for the New Economy, where they're focused on system change. Mm -hmm. And but they're so few. There are mm -hmm. a handful of European funders, but much of the rest is exactly as you say, mm -hmm. um, Susan. So. There's a glimmer of hope, but it's not much more yet, and it's darn hard work still. Well, you see, they don't like ideas, and that's what, I mean, we're in the business of ideas. I think everybody in this room is one way or another in the business of ideas. And, you know, as I kept saying all evening, ideas have consequences, and that is what the neoliberals have shown. But if, if you don't want to fund ideas, and you certainly don't, I mean, they, they, they were Gramscians. They said, we're going to have cultural hegemony, and we're going to go after it. 
uh, in a very practical way, and that's what they did. And we have to do the same thing, except this is, you know, it's an uphill battle. The funders like projects. They don't like long-term ideas. You know. They like projects with measurable results. Okay, now we've got time for a couple more questions. Can I just get an indication of who wants to who ask questions? And if, you, if you're a student here too, don't hesitate to put your hand up um, because it's for you too. Um, can can I, I just um, so. see? So could I perhaps take two questions this time? Um, th uh, this gentleman at the front and then immediately afterwards, I can't, the person... Any more to... women who would like to ask questions? Well, that questions. is a very good question. Ah, excellent. Ah, thank you. So... You will be next. So perhaps this man with the green okay. pen at the same time. Hi, my name is Fernando. I'm a Master of Law student here in the LSE. And my question is, to what extent is democracy part of the problem? Because it seems to me that democracy, at least when it's understood as rule of the majority, it leads to uniformity. And that's precisely what this Global Corporations Project want. They want... And only idea of progress, so, and they actually have been seizing power through democratic procedures, so is democracy really a solution, or we should think about another alternative, more radical alternatives? Okay, so just hold um, that thought, is democracy well, part of the solution or part of the problem? Mm -hmm. And just quickly at the back there, please, could you just wave your arm around? Okay, my name's Tim Amor, and uh, I'm not very important, I don't think so. Non-entity, I suppose. Um, I was pleasantly surprised... I'm sorry, to, I don't see uh, who's my speaking. My name's Tim Amor. Can you raise your hand if you're speaking? Yeah. Thank you. Tim Amor, um, and a, a teacher, really, so nothing terribly impressive. I was imp pleasantly surprised at the Corbyn victory here, despite, you know, the level of opposition, both from within his party and from the media... Um, yet he managed to pick up from party members, apart from new members, 50% of the vote. Um, am I na naive in thinking that this could be um, the beginning of some sort of change, or do you think that... Uh, well, am I naive in, in my uh, optimism, really? Or do you think... Uh, uh, if you're are you speaking about Labour in Britain? Yeah, I'm talking about Labour in Britain. I can't comment. I mean, oh. you know much more... Everybody here knows more about that than I do. Oh, in general, do you think... Well, in, broadening in general, do you think that there is a possibility, as we've seen here, of the left? I, I the moment, think that the left has some very good programs. The, the way France is... My, my country is run today is totally aberrant. There is no economic justification for the way the country is run. And I know people who have produced studies which show that an, uh, that an ecological transition would create hundreds of thousands of jobs, that we could uh, reduce unemployment very quickly by using the Canadian system Instead of handing money, we hand billions to the corporations every year, the largest corporations, which aren't even the ones who supply jobs. It's small and medium enterprise that supply jobs. It's the transnationals get rid of jobs every year. Um, I mean, they, they just ignore the basic facts of life. And this drives me crazy, but I'm not going to bother you with, with our problems in France. I mean, everybody's got the same sorts of problems, but yes... Certainly, the left has got some good solutions. 
Certainly there are, I mean, ask Stuart, ask the New Economics Foundation. They're, they're doing this sort of work every day. Uh, and, and yes, I mean, we have, well, I mean, um, I, uh, I think I've made... And briefly on this um, democracy... I mean, this lady, this well, lady... Hang on, hmm. there's this question here, is democracy part of the solution? Ah, well, look, I mean, if you're saying, uh, why aren't you preaching revolution? Uh, I am preaching revolution, in a sense, but I want it to remain democratic because we have just had too much experience with revolutions which were not democratic. I'm sorry, but they end up bloody. They end up with people in power wanting to retain power no matter what the cost. And I, I'm just ne never going to go for that kind of thing. So uh, my argument for democracy is that everybody in this room knows things that I do not know. Every single one of you knows things that I, that I do not know, and maybe I know one or two things that you don't know. And that's why you asked me to come and talk. But that is my argument for democracy. The more people who can, whose ideas can be expressed, the closer we come to the truth. Perhaps never actually reaching it, but the closer we come to the truth. So I, I will never stop defending democracy, and I, will, and I often say to people, look, if you know the name of the Tsar, and if you know the address of the Winter Palace, I will go with you. But I do not see where the Winter Palace is, uh, so uh, I don't think that I'm going to be uh, out there calling for revolution. And the big word now, at least in the milieu that I, I belong to, is not revolution, and it's not some sort of far-off you know, utopian dream. It is really in... Let us democratize Europe. Let us democratize our own countries. Let, you know, that is, that's the battle cry now, and that's hard enough to do. And, and, but the techniques to do it are not violent. They are creative nonviolence, and they force attention because, uh, and, and it's taken us 10 years to learn this, but it, they force the attention of politicians and of other people when they remain nonviolent. And, and that is how you can advance. Gandhi did it, and, and many others have done it. And, and that's, what, that's what we have to do. It has to remain democratic. Okay, now we're going to try and squeeze in two women, and then we will have to end. There's uh, this woman here with the purple scarf on, and then was it you? Yes, the, the person that's waved. Hi. Um, my name's Emily. I'm an MSc criminal justice policy at the LSE. Um, and I'm just curious to know, as a millennial um, who's grown up in the economic crisis and is really frustrated with the status quo of things right now, um, I look back at my friends who are in the U.S. at the Bernie Sanders movement and his stance on campaign um, financing and also just the rallying I see around that within young people of my generation. Mm -hmm. and. A part of me is really excited because it provides me with hope and it makes me excited to go home and try and be a part of this movement to change things, however that may be. Um, but another part of me is a little cynical because I've seen the Occupy movement uh, come and go and participated in movements that have come and go. And I'm just curious to know what your opinion is on the youth and how they are sort of rallying around this and how that can, momentum can be continued. So, so youth and Bernie Sanders and yes. um, th this woman here with, yep. Um, hello, my name is Laura and I'm a law student here at the LSE. I have a really short and practical question. 
Um, I'm from Switzerland, and I think we have per capita the highest share of transnational corporations with their seat in Switzerland. Uh, say that again, the highest yeah. share, of share of transnational corporations in Switzerland. And I just wanted to ask in your opinion, do you think there's a bigger chance to grasp these transnational corporations or to get these transnational corporations under control where they have their principal seat or where they actually invest and where they actually have their, their operations? Okay, that's a very difficult question because it's, it's a legal question. From what I understand, and you undoubtedly know more about this than I do, every branch of a transnational corporation is, and including the head office, including the place where the decisions are made, is, is simply a subsidiary of a sort of, I mean, that's what I understand, of a sort of idea, which is this huge conglomerate, but it's made up of a whole lot of subsidiaries. So it's a kind of hydra-headed beast. And if you, um, if you slay, you know, one of, the, one of the heads, another one will grow right away. So I don't have an answer to that. And, and, and I would love it if lawyers would, would work on this and explain to me how can we get them under control. We've got a campaign now, for instance, on tax havens. Um, and on the banks that have <coughs> the most tax havens, and the one in France with the most, is the BNP. And the BNP has seven in the Cayman Islands and 171 all told of subsidiaries. So if we... <coughs> time to stop. <coughs> if we go after them one by one, we're dead. This is clearly not going to work, and we don't have a solution. So what we're doing is we send in teams of people to take their chairs. We take a dozen chairs. We're going to take them to the COP21 so that the delegates can sit on these chairs. And we say, and we also have people who are harborers. You know, we take stolen goods, and we will harbor the chairs until they close down their tax havens, and then we will give them back their chairs, and we're making this very clear. And, and the BNP has been stupid enough to bring a lawsuit against us, which we think is wonderful, you know, because, because it's, so, it's so ridiculous. But we're doing stunts like that just to point out why do we take, why, you know, because it always gets into the papers that, you know, that uh, these chairs have been, have been removed from the BNP in such a branch. Um, and uh, you have to go at it in a, in a convoluted way because getting them under control is really very difficult. Again, information. That's the way to do it. There's a lot of action now on the corporate criminals, the, the ones who were the funding the, the divestment, uh, funding the, um, uh, the denialist movement in climate. Exxon, for instance. There's a lot of bad publicity coming down. And one good way is what Mark Carney did here, the governor of the, of the central bank. He said, look out, you know, because you guys who have shares in these companies, you may be left holding the bag because these companies uh, could get hit very hard and then you would have all those Exxon shares that are worth <coughs> practically nothing. So you know, there's different things to follow, but if you're a lawyer, get lawyers to work on this for us because we, we really don't know how, how to handle that question. Um, and, and for the lady before... Um, now, of course, I've forgotten. Youth and Bernie Sanders. Uh, uh, well, I think Bernie's terrific, of course. But, and, and I understand being cynical. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it being cynical. I would, I would call it being sort of 
Uh, you know, we've been there, done that. Uh, I stayed up at f till 4 a.m. for both of Obama's elections. You know, I was, I had to see if, you know, he got Ohio and Pennsylvania, and then he would, I was crying, and, uh, and those are wonderful moments, and then they disappoint you. I mean, it's very hard, but that also depends a lot on, on how, how tough the pressure is on them. If you rem remember that Franklin Roosevelt had a, he had a big conference with unions, and he said, he explained everything he wanted to do for the unions and for workers. And at the end of his talk with the heads of unions, he said, now go out there and make me do it. That's where it comes from. It comes from popular pressure. Well, thank you. That's an excellent moment on which to end. Um, I think we've heard a really interesting talk. Our speaker started by going through the history and the scope of the very idea of progress. She then analysed some of the institutional and ideological bases of what she described as the longest period of regression that we have experienced uh, since those ideas came to the fore. But she ended nonetheless with the idea that it's possible to seek progress despite the odds. We've got the possibility of continuing the discussion both by having a look at um, Susan George's book, and I think she's going to sit outside and sign oh, yeah. copies, um, if, if you would like. Um, but can you just, before you do that, end by thanking our speaker, Dr Susan George.